The next song we're going to do is the title track, and this is called Off the Ground. Thank you. 
Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Of course, I am your host, Sam Wiles, and remember, this is Wide Screen Podcasting. This is Wide Screen Podcasting. As always, thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Today, everyone, we are doing a bonus episode that I actually intended to do in the November of last year, aka 2021, at the time of recording, but sadly, that was... A very busy time, as we had the lyrics book, Grand Dude's Green Submarine, the Let It Be box set, as well as a certain little three-part docuseries on Disney+. And so, things got away from my original machinations for the pod. Back at the end of October, we did our off-the-ground episodes, with part one being the backstory and the production, and part two being a song-by-song review with my inspiration, Mr. Ken Michaels, as per the norm. Now, the original plan was to do an episode concerning the bonus tracks for Off The Ground right away, but as you know, that's not how things worked out. So, I'm here today, here today, to make up for lost time and deliver just that. Shortly, me and my regular compadre, Ken Michaels, will be going through all of the bonus slash non-album tracks from the Off The Ground sessions and... Trust me, there are quite a few of them. They were mostly all released as either B-sides or as part of EPs. And I'm sure they will make up a lovely disc full of content if we ever get the Off The Ground Archive re-release. And yeah, I know I probably should have made this discussion part of my Hot Hits and Cold Cut side series and, you know, made sure it was released well more than a year from now, based on the chronology of how I've been doing with those episodes. But since all of these songs were technically released on the official album, or a variation on it, aka Off The Ground The Complete Works, and since Ken wanted to do it, and since I enjoy conversing with him so much, I have just decided to bump it up the schedule. As per the norm, it's going to be a very standard episode. Just me and my main man Ken having a grand old time, a lot of differing opinions, a lot of debate, but as always we come together at the end, so I hope you have a lot of fun. Also, if you want to see a somewhat continuation of this conversation, then go and check out my recent appearance on the Two Legs podcast, where we go through three albums, off the ground being one of them, and we alter the track listings to our own liking, of course. This includes all of the material that we're going to be talking about today. So, if you want to see why I chose the songs I did for that episode of Two Legs, well, you're going to find out today. Oh, and just before we begin, this episode won't be available on my YouTube page for a while, as that honour will be going to my guest, Mr Ken Michaels. But, if you want to see us have this conversation, this exact conversation, albeit with a little less editing, then... You can go to his page right now. Either type in Ken Michaels in the search bar or follow the link down below. Anyway, with that intro out of the way, it's time for us to crack on with the obligations of the housekeeping. 
Starting off, do we have any news for today? Nope. Do we have any emails for today? Nope. So I'm going to keep this one nice and brief. Follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Check out our blog, paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. You can also check out the latest episode of Macca in Your Attic, our sideshow on YouTube as well, exclusively. If you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review, whether that's stars, thumbs, a rating out of 10, a nice little comment, whatever you do, it always helps us out and is most appreciated. And finally, if you want to help the show grow, if you want to support the show, if you've been enjoying what I'm doing, if you want to help secure product for me to review in the future, or maybe you just want to say thank you for all the hard work I do and want to say thanks, check out our Patreon page. You get early access to episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get instant access to episodes of Macca in Your Attic and all sorts of extra goodies. Let's just crack right on, folks. But first, I just want to thank my entire Patreon family, including Jack, Mr. D. Dubs, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Roger Carper, Moji Ryber, Robert Shirley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. I told you I was going to do a quick one, folks, and that's because I don't want to delay the Kenster, the Michael Nater himself. So let's just get on with it. Three, two, one, go me. Now, folks, I am joined... Once again, by a real titan of the Beatles' new media world. You probably should know who he is, because if you're watching this, you'll probably be on Ken's channel itself. You would know that he is the podfather, an inspiration to us all. And everyone else who does this kind of thing stands on his giant shoulders. He has been the host of the widely syndicated Beatles radio show, Every Little Thing. He's the host of the Beatles podcast, Things We Said Today. And he's one of the co-hosts of Solo Beatles videocast, Talk More Talk. He's been on my podcast, at Paul and I think, several times before, including episodes reviewing Press to Play, Flowers in the Dirt, and rather fittingly, Off the Ground. He's back with the vengeance in terms of me seeing him. I'm so excited today. Everyone, you know him as Ken Michaels. I'm Sam Wiles. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. You're way too kind in your introduction there, you know. And just so the folks know, whenever we write to each other, he's always referring to me as the pod father. <laughs> Where did this come from? You know. You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding and you ask me to do a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been doing podcasts since 2009, so that's quite a while now. That is quite a while. It's not quite, you know, Joe Rogan time or uh, Ricky Gervais length, but you know, you okay. are you are up there, dude. You are, and you know, it was it was the first Beatles podcast I ever came across. Same with so many of my Beatles friends, both here in the UK and and abroad. You know, you set you set the standard. I'm, actually, um, you know what? Let's get into my first question because this this actually t- uh, touches on it. Obviously, the big thing that's happened since we last spoke was the Beatles get back and your episode that you put out was absolutely insane. It was probably one of my favorite Beatle podcasts ever. The guest certainly helped. But yes. before we talk about him, I, I, you know, it's been a few months now since it first dropped. 
How are you, how are you feeling now about the Beatles get back? I think it's the best thing we've been treated to since the Beatles anthology. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if anything, what a miracle it is that the sessions for Get Back, Let It Be were filmed. We've known all along that they were. But just think for a second if we had any film footage of any other yeah. sessions of the Beatles for a specific album. Let's just say, well, here's the Sgt. Pepper sessions. We have them on film. You know, we just don't have that for anything else. If it wasn't for the fact that they were planning on making a TV special, we wouldn't have this at all. I can you just know, imagine so. <laughs> Lindsay Hogg in the Sergeant Pepper sessions. Look, a thousand torch lit Arabs. I'm never going to mention this again, but I think I think we should do this for the front cover. Yeah, sure, Michael. Whatever, whatever you say. Whatever you say. Oh. It's it's a fascinating study, and you know. One of the things that is so amazing about the Beatles is that even with all this footage that we've watched, there's still questions that I have. <laughs> you know, you think everything's been answered already, but it hasn't. Um, you know, and it's just a, it's a great, I like to call it a great character study of the four of them and how they work together. And the most fascinating thing is, is how the dynamic change between John and Paul throughout this whole process and how Paul was really, uh, you know, the guy who was the driver taking charge in the sessions and he was really pushing the band, you know, to do all this stuff. It was a tremendous pressure. Imagine for any band to have to come up with an album from scratch in one month with almost all new songs, didn't turn out to be all new, but that a TV special, you know, and a concert. And in the end, they really didn't succeed on all three, if you think <laughs> about it. It's the truth. I yeah. mean, the Apple Rooftop concert is not a real concert. It's really, I think Alan Cozen described this as a glorified rehearsal. It was only five songs that they did. And for all that's said about the cops starting, uh, stopping the concert, well, what if they didn't? How much longer could they have gone on with the same songs? You know, but still, uh, I'm grateful that we have it and the performance is great, but it's not a complete concert in any way. Um, they wanted to perform, I guess, most of the songs from their new album in concert. Originally, it was going to be a concert with white album material. This is the end of December of, of 68, and I suppose some older stuff, too, but that wasn't good enough for the Beatles. No, they had to do they had to put all this this pressure and all this weight on themselves. And a lot of that, I believe, was, you know, Paul driving the band. He always wanted to do something different and go in different directions. And in the beginning, Paul was very frustrated when he noticed that they weren't making as much progress as he felt they needed to. They only had a few songs nailed down. And there's a great moment there towards the end where they're talking about what are we going to do live? How many songs have we got? And John says, well, you know, five, five or six. And John is content with that, <laughs> you know, and Paul is not. He wants a great spectacular, you know, some great location where they can do this. And as it turns out, it didn't, it couldn't work out that way. But towards the end, you know, John really kind of, took charge, mm -hmm. I think, when they were at Apple. And, uh, you know, even Peter Jackson was talking about that in, in our conversation with him, just how the roles changed right mm -hmm. there. After they had a talk, John and Paul, about 
how we're going to treat George and show him some more respect and listen to his ideas. And, you know, it was a very frustrating time for George to deal with the band there because, you know, he's presenting songs like I Me Mine. They're not, you know, John in particular didn't care that much for the song. Um, it was it was a Lennon-McCartney show. And that's what the Beatles were from the very beginning. I'm not doubting that George gave great contributions with his songs, but he was always limited to his one, two songs per album. And I think he was really getting frustrated, you know, at this point. One of the most fascinating moments, and I, I've said this probably in every show talking about Get Back, is right before George quits. And John and Paul are standing next to each other at Twickenham playing the guitars, they're looking right at each other and they're so into the song that they're playing. And it looks like these guys are in love with each other. You know, mm -hmm. John and Paul really look that way and George is there on the sidelines probably thinking, I'm never gonna be a part of this. You know, they're in their own world. And I was feeling for George. You can feel the frustration building in that first episode. But to see how the roles change between John and Paul is absolutely fascinating. And of course, you know, Billy Preston really helped out <laughs> towards the end, uh, making them a fantastic unit there and, uh, you know, tightening up the band. And it was, uh, and you can just tell that they were all happy when they went to Apple, at least from the film footage. And they were really enjoying each other's company and they're jamming on one of George's songs, Old Brown Shoe. They're really into that. I'm feeling so good for George. And, um, it's just a, an incredible study of how this band works and, um, you know, how they have to deal with, even though you don't really sense it from the film, you know, Yoko was there all the time, right mm -hmm. beside John. But in the film, you never really see her talking all that much. She's just by John's side showing support, knitting or something else that <laughs> occupies her time reading a newspaper but they have to deal with all these different problems and you're seeing them come to the surface here. And yet this is really a study of what can these four guys do in one month's time, really less, cause it was really what, three weeks of rehearsal, something like that. They had a deadline, could they pull it off? And uh, more, more or less they did, more or less. Uh, well, depend, you know, depend, depends they, how you look at it, I suppose. They didn't have a TV special. They didn't have enough for a full album. It was close. They still had to pad it with I Me Mine. They had to record I Me Mine in January of 1970. And they still had to throw in Across the Universe, mm -hmm. you know? And um, those other snippets, you know, like Maggie May, and dig it, and you've got an album. But they didn't have enough. You know, most Beatle albums were 14 tracks, mm -hmm. the British albums or something close to that, like A Hard Day's Night was 13. What did they have? I think nine songs at that point, which is still good, but they didn't have a full album yet. So they still accomplished a lot in a month's time. And to see how they had to deal with each other and their different personalities and different egos, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's Ringo in the back, always being supportive. You know, no matter what, he's the easiest guy to figure out because no matter what they're going through, whatever problems they have to work out, he's there to give you those steady drums, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. 
so grateful that he was a part of that band, I tell you. Yeah, no one ever gives Ringo enough credit as being like the, the elder statesman of the group, the kind of guy who's like, all right, lads, settle down now, settle down. You know, he, mm. he, he was the guy during the uh, How Do You Sleep sessions where he was the one to go, all right, John, enough now, enough. Right. You know? And that's probably indicative of his entire dynamic with the band. Probably whenever there was an, uh, a, a, a spat off screen or somewhere, he would definitely be the guy to say, you know, sort it out now, gents, yeah. Come on. No matter what, you know, even in their solo careers, if any of them wanted Ringo to play drums on anything, he'd be there for them. That's it. You know, the music matters to him. And these are his, as he's called them, his three brothers. And he would do anything for them. And I've always felt that way. I think it, deep down, they are a family, the four of them. And despite whatever problems they had and whatever they brought out in public, you know, whatever squabbles they had, they would have been there for each other for anything. And I do believe that. Are you looking forward to the Blu-ray release? Are you looking forward to having a physical copy that was long rumoured to not even exist? I'm just shocked that it's coming out so soon, to tell you the truth. I mean, February the 8th is the release date. And uh, yeah, obviously. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful that we have this and it went from being a two-hour film to a six-hour film, and then it became almost at the last second. You heard it was, it was going to be almost eight hours. So we were really spoiled, but we also know that there's a director's cut mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, I think it's 16 hours. Peter said, I, don't know, "I would love to have more footage, but you know, what can I say? I'm greedy in that in that regard. But I'll be grateful for this." And who knows if further on down the road, there'll be a deluxe version that comes mm-hmm. out with more stuff. You just never know. Um, the possibilities are endless when it comes to the Get Back, Let It Be stuff. I do wish there'd be an audio soundtrack of some kind. I don't know if that will ever happen because so much of what they mm-hmm. recorded then were, you know, jams and and you know, unfinished takes of songs and snippets of songs. And you're either fascinated by that to know they went through all this and they pulled so much stuff, fifties, rock and roll, all kinds of stuff. There's a children's song uh, that was a hit record back in uh, 1954 in your country and in, in our country too. If I can remember the full title, Gilly, Gilly, Austin Pfeffer, Oh, that was, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, uh, by the yeah. sea. They're doing all this stuff, you know, and they're pulling their, their old songs. I lost my little girl, went after 909, obviously, you know. And, you know, it was so fascinating to see how much was pouring out of Paul at that moment. Although, you know, you study his whole history and there are these blocks of time where if you listen to bootlegs, He's got two albums worth of material and even more. <laughs> it's like, where does it all come from? He's got these songs. I was just listening to, um, mainly because you, you posted something on Facebook about the piano tape. Oh, from Mull of Kintyre. You, yeah. you, you wrote something about Mull of Kintyre um, because someone was asking how much did Denny Lane write? And I interviewed Denny and Denny said that he and Paul wrote the lyrics for the verses. And Paul came up with the chorus. Um, so I wrote to respond to that post. But if you listen to the piano tape from 1974, 
where he's doing Mull of Kintyre three years before it comes out. He's got songs on there that ended up on Back to the Egg. Yeah. <laughs> and London Town with Girlfriend, you know, it's plus the songs that he was going to put out the next year for Venus and Mars. He's got all this material. Where does it all come from? And that's that one moment in time. And you could go to so many different years, like that period that I love so much in between Press to Play and Flowers in the Dirt with all this other stuff that he did with Phil Ramone. It's like, and a lot of this stuff has been bootlegged, but not officially released, mm -hmm. although you know it's going to be released at some point probably. But in, in this film, all these ideas from Paul, stuff that eventually he releases in his solo career, Another Day, Backseat of My Car. You got the same thing with John and George, too. With Give mm -hmm. Me Some Truth and All Things Must Pass and other stuff that George was doing then that ended up on All Things Must Pass. And, but it's, there's Paul at the piano doing Woman, the song <laughs> he gave to Peter and Gordon. You know, he's creating Carry That Weight you know, right in front of your eyes with this other verse or verses that he writes about get back in front of George and Ringo and they're <laughs> yawning. Oh, George is <laughs> yawning. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. There's another one. And then, yeah. but like the craziest thing though, is that it, you know, cut to the next episode. I think it's George going, yeah, that should be the single. And I'm like, mm. George Harrison suggested that get back should be the single. Insane. Never would have guessed that unless I've seen it with my own two eyes that, that, mm. that you are right though it's it's a bit like you know when people say you study the the more you study physics the less you know about physics the more uh -huh. you study the, the get back sessions the, the more you realize you that you don't know anything about the get back sessions you know right so many more questions left at the end of that you are you are right but um just uh so here, here's a question i'll throw at you okay. i mean this is one of the things just just for example I mean, we know that the Beatles had a limited amount of time because Ringo had to go and film The Magic Christian. And I was looking at um, Mark Lewison's book, The Complete Beatles Chronicle, and it said that Ringo had 13 weeks of shooting to do. Mm -hmm. But that didn't mean that he was away for 13 weeks. Yeah. Because they went, when they came back and did I Want You, She's So Heavy, when they worked on that first on February 22nd, he was there. Mm -hmm. So why did they have to... You know, they gave themselves themselves this block of time, you know, and it had to end by the end of January. You know, as it turns out, if Ringo was available sometime during the Magic Christian, they could have done more work on what became Let It Be. But once those sessions ended, mm. that was it. I heard a, an interview with Glenn Johns. Sorry if I'm rambling on where he's saying that once once that month was up that was it and then it was on to abbey road so i guess when they started i want you she's so heavy they already had it in mind that it would be on the next album mm -hmm. i guess that's what glenn said but um at the same time ringo wasn't there for the ballad of john and yoko when they did that in april so he wasn't available then and apparently he wasn't available for old brown shoe either at least according to uh, kevin howlett's notes and the abbey road box set it's supposed to be paul drumming on that so um, I guess Ringo would be available sometime, but not all the time once he was working on the Magic Christian. You never know, though. Like, perhaps, you know, Ringo or perhaps Ringo, George and John would have liked the Magic Christian to be an excuse not to have to record for 13 weeks. You know, Paul, Paul uh, has kind of gotten the band to come back 
after the uh, the White Album sessions very very quickly. So that may, so maybe they're thinking, look, okay, we'll we'll knock out this this Let It Be Get Back project, and then we'll have some time off because if all four of us aren't here, Paul can't make us come back into, mm. into the studio. But uh, as we as we saw, like like said there, that's definitely not how it turned out. But I could I could definitely see John being like, look, Ringo. Just say you're unavailable for those 13 weeks. I, <laughs> I'd really appreciate that. I promise we won't get Paul to do the drumming on anything. There is a part of me that that does feel that Paul kind of felt like gradually the band is slipping away. John is getting more and more into Yoko. George is away. He's hanging out with Bob Dylan. Ringo's about to make a film unless you keep coming up with ideas and projects and trying to get the band together, you know, the further you're away from it, the tougher it is to get them back into it. Mm. And I think there was probably some fear. That's just my opinion here on Paul's behalf. And Paul wanted to keep the band going for as long as he could. Cause he loved that band. He probably he feels his, like historically justified though, in the, in the sense that, you know, Paul's probably sat here thinking now, well, if I didn't push him, then we wouldn't have had Let It Be in Abbey Road. So I guess I did do the right thing. There's definitely part yeah. of me that thinks he does He does feel that way because we did get all of this amazing music. We did get all that amazing footage largely because of Paul. Um, and I'd rather have an idea that three of them weren't too happy about as long as it gets me more Beatles music. You know, the ends justifies the means. Um, mm. You know, it we, is. It is. A question there, Paul wasn't driving the band at that time. Would they have broken up even sooner? Mm -hmm. Would they have put out as much music? You know, we'll never know the answer to that, but still grateful that he was, you know, trying to get the band to work more. And, and for that reason, we do have all this other music. Let it be album and Abbey Road. You know, out there in the great multiverse, Ivan Vaughan never introduced Paul to John at the, at, at the Walton Fay, and, you know, history was irrevocably changed forever, you know. Uh, I always say he's the greatest unsung hero in the history of the Beatles. Yeah. Without Ivan Vaughan, where would we be right now? We wouldn't have Blackbird singing. We wouldn't have Blackbird singing, Ken. <laughs> that's, that, that's where we'd be. Um, <laughs> Just uh, a little uh, comment I noticed on your uh, interview with Peter Jackson. Um, in one of the comments, it, it, it reads, when Get Back does get a physical release, this interview should be a bonus feature. I totally agree with that. I thought that that was... Oh, I was so jealous that you got to speak to Mr. Jackson. I was so, so jealous. Uh, I can't believe that, that that was a thing. And it's so cool that... He is enough of a Beatle fan to recognise not just the power of podcasts, but how much of the fandom is is involved in it. And for him to get involved like that, it was really cool. And not only that, I mean, he comes across as a fan like the rest of us, and he wants to learn. I mean, he's asking us questions. You know, this is a guy that just, he's gone through 60 hours of film footage that most of us haven't seen, and, uh, and all the Nagra stuff. And... Um, yeah, it came as a big shock to us because his production company approached us. Wasn't the other way around. And for that alone, and, and we eventually figured out from his emails, he listens to us. Mm -hmm. And just oh, knowing I could tell. that, I could tell. Just, you, just knowing that is reward enough. 
for us. And um, he actually sent us an email and he said, you know, we can do this as long as you want and as long as it doesn't cut into Thanksgiving. <laughs> and oh it was God. getting close to four hours and I'm saying, we can't keep this guy any longer. <laughs> we, got it. we got so much that we're lucky, we're blessed to have. And um, I do hope that he comes back. You know, it's, it's, it's asking a lot, you know, but he did kind of suggest that he'd like to come back, you know, after the after the documentary airs. But I can imagine how busy he is. And, you know, I'm sure he's going to be asked a lot of questions in the future because this is now a, a matter of permanent record. It's going to be people are going to be studying this for forever when it comes to the Beatles. Mm-hmm. We've never had this intense a study on anything, you know. I mean, the Beatles anthology was great. It covered from birth to the end of the group, but this is one concentrated period of time and what they were going through. It's just, um, it's beyond fascinating. You know, throughout the whole Beatles history as a band, they always had to come up with albums fairly quickly. And in the very beginning, they were, they were churning out two albums a year. Fortunately, they got by with some cover versions, Mm -hmm. but they still had deadlines and pressures to meet, and they still managed to do them. They had to come up with songs while they were busy, while while they were on the road. You know, they didn't have time to go to the bathroom sometimes. You know, (laughs) they were that busy. And uh, so for some people, this might just be what they did normally. But when you're observing it on screen... um, and you're seeing them, you know, certain songs taking shape before your eyes and seeing little changes being made. You know, it's, it's definitely fascinating. I always love that bit and Don't Let Me Down where there's that call and answer thing that they're doing mm-hmm. early on, which is not really working out. You know, for the first time in my life. Yes, you know, the answer yeah. that, it's like, yeah, that's really nice. It's actually very early Beatley <laughs> in a way, if you think about it. But it's just interesting, you know, and Paul, Paul is coming up with all these ideas for what really is John's song, mm-hmm. you know. But it's, it's fascinating to watch all that stuff. The few changes that are made with two of us, you know. Oh, the, the, would, uh, the intro to Dig a Pony that was cut seemingly like at the last minute. Because, yeah. Oh, I want is, uh, uh-huh. like, I actually prefer that. I prefer it that way. Like to me, that's the definitive Dig a, uh, dig a Pony. Just uh, going back to something you said earlier, though, about um, the set list being short. I mean, back when they first toured, back when they were first doing, you know, shared gigs with, you know, six other acts on the ticket, uh-huh. They, pro- they probably would have just done five or five or six songs, and that would have been it. So maybe you know you could you could construe that they are getting back in that sense. You know, maybe just throw in long tall Sally just for the icing on the cake. You know? I don't know. I don't think they were thinking in terms of what it was like from sixty three through sixty six. You know, or giving the half hour concerts that they did that they were used to at that point in 1969, you couldn't do a half hour concert, you know, you couldn't get away with that. But, you know, I think certainly in, in, in Paul's mind, he was envisioning a full concert, mm-hmm. certainly something longer than an hour, an hour and a half, maybe. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful we have the Apple rooftop concert, but 
you know, it's it's not a real concert. <laughs> are you going to watch you get um, in, in IMAX when that comes out? Uh, yes, I got, am. Okay. Have you got an IMAX theater nearish by then? Um, not in Connecticut where I live, but um, there's a few in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm actually going to, there's one in New Jersey that I'm going to. Oh, okay. Nice. Nice. Oh, hang on. Who, so, I'm trying to think. There's quite a few Beatles podcasters in New Jersey. You probably you'll 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 probably be there with them. I imagine. Awesome. Um, sure, I'll be happy to. <laughs> right, let's get down to brass tacks. The reason we are here today, here today, is to discuss the B sides and bonus tracks for the off the ground sessions. Of course, the last time we spoke, Ken, we talked about off the ground, uh, off the ground, the main album. But, um, you know, let's just lay the foundations, the context for this conversation, because I'm guessing you've heard this notion, but it's widely circulated. It's an oft-shared opinion that the B-sides from Off the Ground are, quote-unquote, supposedly better than the album itself. But I think we proved in our last chat that Off the Ground proper isn't all that bad, right? I think it's an extremely strong album. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I actually do love every song on off the ground although i could understand why some people have a problem with biker like an icon not the greatest <laughs> rhyme it alone, in the world leave it alone. <laughs> you know it's still a very catchy song you know it's a fascinating thing that people have in certain podcasts have liked to play with this whole idea of what would you take off the album and what would you replace with it and um the thing about Off the Ground is, I mean, this was one of the greatest times to be a McCartney fan, to get these CD singles when they came out and to have three other songs other than the single. Mm-hmm. Just imagine growing up in the 60s and 70s and every time there'd be a 45 coming out and there was a non-LP B-side. It was like, ooh, one <laughs> new song and it's not on the album. Well, here we're getting three each time. Yeah. And it's... This is like, oh, my God. And and the fact that they were really good. I mean, most of them were excellent. There are a few that really, in my opinion, are more B-side material, but still worth putting out. So, yeah, I can understand how, especially, I mean, Hope of Deliverance is a classic. (laughs) Yeah. It It is fantastic. All four songs on there are fantastic. Um. And for the life of me, when I heard Long Leather Coat, I'm I'm saying, how on earth is this not on the album? How is he not doing this live? This is a great rocker that he could pull off. And not only that, one of the things that I love about Off the Ground and and these bonus songs, his voice was in great shape. Mm -hmm. And he was hitting high notes and, you know, and not just the falsetto like we're used to hearing more and more now but his real voice and um yeah i i mean it's tough to say what you would take off this album depending upon how much you love off the ground mm. i mean um if i bring up wine dark open sea which i think is is a favorite of yours. I love the song. I just think it goes on a little bit too long. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you've got that completely backwards. It's it's one that I'd shaft immediately. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, quite ironically, tomorrow I'm appearing on Two Legs and we're doing there, uh, you know, what would you take on? What would you put put, uh, put back in? We're doing London Town, Flowers in the Dirt and this. 
And I do actually have a list here right now. I might actually beat this out. I don't know. I might even cut it out completely. But um, I've gone for side one, off the ground, mistress and maid, biker like an icon, lucky for changes, I owe it all to you, cosmically conscious, the full version. Then oh, Wait side... a minute, wait a minute. This is how you want side one to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that okay. order. Side two, start off with hope of deliverance. Golden Earth Girl, The Lovers That Never Were, Long Leather Coat, Kicked Around No More, Come On People, End With Soggy Noodle. <laughs> soggy Noodle is essential, I suppose. Yeah, oh, no, no, the, the album falls apart without it. It's a real, it's a real uh, load, load, lodestone, definitely. But um, mm. really difficult one to, to, uh, to, to, to do, that was. Uh, there's a couple of songs that I'd like to fit on there if I could, but unlike the other two guys who will be appearing on that episode, I'm mm. very faithful to the, the format of vinyl, like how much you can actually fit on uh, a disc. Okay. You know, I don't want to go over like, you know, more than 25 minutes aside. It, you know, it, that's just cheating. If you have a two hour long sing, single disc vinyl, um, you know what? Speak, speaking of discs though, I mean, we've got about 23 full songs here. Could you imagine Envisage off the ground as just being a straight up double album? I mean, yes, yeah, <laughs> I prefer it to be that way because I wouldn't want to exclude most of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I really like all the songs. Uh, you know, apart from I don't know how you feel about Sweet Sweet Memories, to me, that's B side material. It's just it's okay, it's all right. I can see it as the B side of a, of, of a single, really. Um, mm -hmm. But all the other songs, I like a lot. Um, some people might have a problem with big boys bickering because of the use of the F word. I like the song a lot. Um, and I admire Paul for, for speaking up about politics and what he thinks is wrong with the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just don't think that he needed to use the F word so much, <laughs> you know, especially towards the end with, you know, blanking it up for everyone and all that, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, to do it over and over and over again. I have no problem with using profanity when it's used really well, like working class hero. I think I talked about on your show, you know, he only says it twice, but you know, less is more. It's more powerful when you use it just a few times and using it so much, but I still love that song. Big boys bickering. How do you sleep? You boop. Whoa, whoa, John. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Um, you could definitely picture a world, though, where Off the Ground was a double album. Flowers in the Dirt was uh, especially successful, considering Paul's last, you know, streaks of albums. And, you know, I don't think the novelty of his comeback would have worn off by this point. You know, we've come off MTV, the massive tour, um, Flower, Flowers in the Dirt. I could see a world where the record studio would be like, you know what, Paul, we'll let you put out these these two discs let's let's see what happens maybe it would have curried more favor with the critics maybe it would have damaged the album but it's not impossible to see that it it, it, it would have been released that way um though the interesting thing about what became b-side material what became a-side stuff is the way the the tracks were chosen for the album it's probably the most democratic way mccartney's ever done it all the members of the band would give each song one out of ten and the ones with the highest scores ended up on the album. Um, so I think by default, 
these songs are proof that the band as a whole, whether, whether it means McCarty himself or not, is to be seen. But clearly, on average, the band thought that this stuff was, quote unquote, the lesser material by the mm. Yeah, well, that's what I heard about Red Rose Speedway. Oh, well, Red Rose Speedway you know, did, did that as well. Well, well Danny Sywell said that the band kind of chose the material. Mm. Not so much based on what they they felt were the strongest songs, but what flowed really well on the mm-hmm. album. So, you know, another more proof that it was more of a band mm-hmm. than we're led to believe with an obvious leader, but still <laughs> at the same time having input from all the members in different ways. But um, definitely I would have loved to have seen off the ground as a double album although it is fun to have all these EPs at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I don't know if I agree with you. Flowers in the Dirt um, critically was acclaimed. Mm-hmm. Commercially, didn't do all that well. I mean, it only went to at least, well, in the United States, let me put that up. <laughs> I think it only went to number 21 on the charts here, despite Mental. the fact that he toured. Mental, it's ridiculous. Like, not yeah. even top 20, come on. So, and that's with his first tour of the U.S. in 13 years. And he was plugging it. And he did like five songs, I think, from Flowers in the Dirt. And even still, it didn't do that well commercially. My Brave Face was a a top 40 hit. Went to 25 here. But still, I mean, it deserved to be a number one album as far as I'm concerned. And uh, yeah, um, it's kind of funny we know that Red Rose Speedway wasn't allowed to become a double album. And part of the problem was that wildlife didn't perform as well as I guess they wanted it to. And yet Paul's classical work is a double album. <laughs> you know, Liverpool <laughs> Oratorio is a double CD. Uh, so strange how that works, but you know, as a fan, it was so great at that time to get these EPs. What, what you know, what a treat. You know, it, it's it's a treat and it's frustrating when you hear these songs and they're relegated to being bonus tracks. So many of my favorite songs from Paul are B-sides, mm-hmm. you know, and um, on a show like Two Legs, they take a look at that. But at the same time, you know, I get used to the way they were released. It, it goes a little bit too far, I think. I know I'll get some heat for saying this, but the people who are who are critical of the way the Beatles released their stuff as a group. And they, they looked at singles and albums as separate entities and singles weren't meant to sell albums. A lot of them were just standalone singles. Wasn't always the case, Mm -hmm. but you know, the people who would say, you know, put, we can work it out and day trip or on rubber soul and take out whatever, what goes on and, Mm -hmm. and uh, wait. And you got a better album. Yeah. Well then what would you have made the single? Mm-hmm. You know, if you want it to be a single that's by itself, if you were going to go by, you know, that kind of philosophy, you know, everything was great the way they did it just by themselves or that Penny Lane and Strawberry Field should have been on Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, you know, like, Sgt. Um, Pepper did fine just by itself. <laughs> it did know. fine, yeah. yeah. Being the greatest reviewed album for like 30 years. I think, yeah, I think, I think it did okay. I mean, like, I've been listening to quite a bit of Bowie lately, and most of his non-album singles have almost nothing to do with the album 
that it's promoting they sound they have a completely diff, different sound and texture and uh-huh. I, do, I do like that idea that they are separate entities though when you go into the 70s with wings you do get a lot more album based singles you know uh, just mm. you know um, i think did did um wings at the speed of sound have any non album single material i don't think it did i think that was just a straight up nope that's it mhm it always bothered me that Beware My Love was a B-side. <laughs> Beware it was the B-side of Let Him In. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I love Let Him In, don't get me wrong, but Beware My Love deserved to be an A-side by itself to me. As did Cook uh, of the House. As did Cook <laughs> of the House, King. But there, there were standalone singles for Paul, too. Don't, you know, yeah, Another you know, Day and Junior's Farm and Mull of Kintyre. Mull of Kintyre, yeah. Uh, though... Good. Um, no spoilers, but again, I'll probably be including that on my version of London Town with two legs tomorrow as well. <laughs> uh, okay, lot of stuff to cut from that album. Very controversially, I'm sure I'll see your shocked face in all in all due course. Um, though, uh, just going back to the idea of a double album, one technically did come out. We had uh, off the ground the complete works released oh. in Germany and the Netherlands, which collated all of this material and it does kind of boggle my mind ken that such a potentially lucrative release was relegated to just those two countries and i'm not saying this in a kind of colonial put down way where i'm saying it should have been released in proper countries or anything like that i'm just bemoaning the fact that now in 2022 i don't have cheap easy ready access to it Mm. um I really, you know, it, it certainly would have helped the album sales total overall. I'm sure that they, they would have collated them together. Uh, even just, you know, a couple of thousand copies for per per territory for the superfans w- would have been a nice little bonus. But I guess there was just something about those two territories, I guess. Well, what about the Flowers and the Dirt double CD that came out in Japan? You know, why only Japan? Party. I need party party, Ken. <laughs> But, you know, and there's room for it all on the box sets <laughs> that, yeah. come, that come out. So I was I was just looking at the Flowers in the Dirt box set. There's no single version of Figure of Eight on, on the box set, as far as I'm aware. No, you mean the live one? No, the 5-minute uh, yes. 11 single, because the single edit's different than the one on the album, isn't it? I'm thinking of the live version that was the single. And that was a digital, that was only available digitally. You had to download them. That was oh, on there. Oh, okay. No, because um, I've, I've got a couple of, I mean, I've got a couple of single versions oh, of there, Figure of Eight, and it's it's like two minutes longer than the actual album version. It's okay. It's, you it's, might be right about that. Yeah. Slightly more rocky. Um, and, yeah, strange. Oh, the live, version, the live version is much rockier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Strange that that wasn't included. Hopefully all of this will be included on a future archive release of Off the Ground, though. I can't imagine it wouldn't be. Um, you know, maybe they'll even mm-hmm. throw in Unplugged as well, because that's from around this period. I couldn't imagine them doing an Unplugged archive release by itself. Why not? Uh, I mean, they, they didn't do it with, like, Chobber, for example, stuff where there's not a glut of excess material. Um, but then again, Snava VCCP probably could have been chucked in with Flowers in the Dirt as well if you were doing a bonus disc like that. Well, never say never. Never say <laughs> never. We have no idea what um, 
what will be coming out. I mean, we have an idea uh, of, uh, you know, how can they not release London Town and Back to the Egg? And, and certainly, from my point of view, Press to Play, and still Broad Street. And I don't know what bonus material you can have with Broad Street, what lies in the archives, alternate takes and all this other stuff. But off the ground, you know, everything that's pre-Flaming Pie, I can't see why they wouldn't mm-hmm. put out archival releases. Well, I mean, Memory Almost Full's coming up to 20 years old now, isn't it? Next next year, 2000... Oh, no, was 2001 that was released? Uh, no, 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 no. Memory Almost Full was 2007. Oh, no, what? No, what, what, no, what, Chaos what, and Creation is 2005. Driving Rain Driving is 2001. Rain, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So driving rain's technically reaching its its twenty year ped. It, well, it, it surely would have reached it by now. So, oh, that now that would annoy the fans if we get if we get driving rain before off the ground before press well, to play. You know, funny. McCartney McCartney hasn't done his archival box sets in line with anniversaries. No, you know, no, the no. Beatles stuff is kind of close. You know, they're trying to work that in with fiftieth anniversaries, or could could end up being sixtieth anniversaries pretty soon but i don't think they well yeah mccartney hasn't done that they're trying to coordinate the john and george stuff with anniversaries but mccartney just puts them out kind of randomly um and i like the fact that he mixes it all up but so that's not all done chronologically i definitely imagine it's just him listening to an album in his in his car when he goes we're gonna do that one next we're gonna do that one i like this Mm. one ah Right. I have a I have a feeling it, it's either going to be London Town, and everybody's assuming it's going to be packaged together, London Town back to the egg because of wildlife and Red Rose Speedway, and um, actually Tug of War and Pipes of Peace came out at the same time, right? But they, but they weren't a, a big box set, though. Were right? They? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's possible. I. I still would like to see i i'm i want press to play more than anything but <laughs> i can yeah. certainly see a lot of people clamoring for london town back to the air oh if the press to play one has returned to pepperland on it as well oh that, that's all you need yeah <laughs> <laughs> one of the greatest unreleased songs of all time and that should have been a single when he first recorded it too yeah I mean, it's it's it, it's one of those songs that Paul could only have released at that time because eventually Nelson Mandela was still under arrest and the line wouldn't wouldn't make sense anymore. He missed mm. his opportunity. He missed it. Um, but still, it was 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. So maybe the 50th an- anniversary. It'll be a. It'll it'll be a. You know, you never know. Uh, Wait, no, we've had 50th of Pepper, 60th now. Uh, yeah. Three times the length later, it'll, uh, it'll finally come out. Anyway, let's, let's jump into the first of the tracks then. Um, so first of all, we're going to have one of the only B-sides on this list that I actually own on vinyl myself. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about Long Leather Coat. I'm alone, said she. No one to phone, no one to touch me. On the way, said the man in long leather coat as he started his car. I'm glad 
those who don't know, this was a B-side to the Hope of Deliverance single, and it is a true Paul and Linda collaboration, with both of them sharing a songwriting credit, something that really excited me. Uh, the, the, the reason McCartney would probably want people to definitely hear this song, and it's odd that it's not on the album, is that it does fit in with the political streak of tracks we were writing around that time. Looking for changes, big boys mm. bickering. Even Linda's white-coated man shares yes. uh, a, a through line with this. Though the way he does it is much more subversive than you'd expect from a, a McCartney song. It begins with just a guy in a long leather coat finding a note in his pocket, and it's from a woman, and she says, she, you know, she's lonely, and she invites him around so the party can begin. So you're thinking, oh, this is a, a, a cheeky little sexual song that Paul was doing in his middle ages. Love it. However, before you know it, the man with the long leather coat, he's disrobed, he's hung up the coat, he's gone into the bedroom, the woman's locked him in, and thrown red paint all over the, the, the long leather coat. And not only is this twist just really funny and fun, but, and also really, very poignant, but it's also, you know, it, it, it does flip your expectations. You know, you're thinking, oh, this is, you know, the woman, she's the one initiating the sexual act. This is where the song's going, and it's not that at all. She's the morally superior one and the one who outwits the the horny bloke as well uh, <laughs> and I just I just thought that that was very obviously a Paul and Linda move they both had a lot of fun writing this song and yeah I'll I'll get into my thoughts in a, in a moment of what I think about the song I really like it I know you really like it as well but uh Ken would you say that this is one of the better executed McCartney political romps oh definitely you know, I always tend to look at the musical side more than the lyrics mm-hmm. first. <clears throat> and McCartney is a master <clears throat> coming up with a lot of different sections in a song and stringing it all together in a, <clears throat> in a way where it all flows. Mm-hmm. I like to point that out in, you know, songs like Band on the Run and Uncle Albert. And it, it does just that. And there's this tremendous build up to when he screams, you know, let the party begin. You know, I love that. You know, that's this Paul in his element there with a great rocker, with a great voice. And um, like I said, I'd give anything for him to do that live. Mm-hmm. I think he could still pull it off now. Uh, but yeah, I would agree you with you that uh, it, it falls in line with looking for changes, you know, a, another animal rights song and something very meaningful for Paul and Linda to write together. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a B side. <laughs> it deserves better treatment, you know, more attention than that. Yeah, I just I loved it from the get go. Those that the, the, those real old timey rock and roll. I'm all alone, just like right at the start. It's just in, in in that silence, and it makes you anticipate a very different kind of song. But then it goes into that very modern sounding pop rock kind of chugalug rhythm. Uh-huh. It's just a thrill to listen to. And from that moment on, I was like, maybe these B-sides aren't going to be that bad at all. And it almost had a kind of wet, squelchy sound, like a kind of production that I haven't heard since something like Cufflink from, from London Town. And it's nothing like anything else that Julian Mendelssohn produced for the rest of the album. It's a, it's a, it's a unique song in a unique session. Um, you know, I really enjoyed Wix's synthesizer organs licking in the background. Um, I couldn't tell who was doing lead, but the guitar solos are just straight up badass. They really are. 
Um, mm. I also liked how high Linda's vocals were in the mix, which makes sense. She's a co-writer. Her voice is literally being made to be heard. And the rhythm section in this song is just, oh, <laughs> it is, it's just really funky. It really just keeps, you know, uh, a really surging uh, pace with this song. And it's probably going to be one of the only tracks where I really can tip my hat to Blair Cunningham here. He, it, it, he's, he's just dynamite on this track. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a driving song, no doubt. And uh, it's got a lot going for it. It always, you know, baffles me. Uh, on Things We Said Today, I know that Alan Cozen has talked about one time when he interviewed Paul and he was referring to a lot of the bonus tracks that were coming out on Flowers in the Dirt at the time. And he's saying, why, why do you put them out these, this way? <clears throat> and Paul says, well, you know, I like all my songs. I can't make up my mind which should come out and which shouldn't come out on his albums. And, well, he's, he's proving that. <laughs> you know? Because, well, if, if you're like me and you like most of what he's done, you'd probably feel that everything belongs on his albums anyway. Mm-hmm. And don't don't deserve to be B-side material. This is definitely one that should have been on the album to me. But like you said, I'd prefer there to be a double album than taking off anything that was on Off the Ground. Oh, totally. I think, I think it'd be a, just a, a nice collection of songs. It really would. I don't know how you'd order it. That's another fun com- conversation for another day, I, I suppose. Um, okay. my, my By the pro- way, I just want to say I wish I could adjust the lighting here because it really got <laughs> kind of dark. It was light before, and then all of a sudden it just changes. I'm looking for changes right now. Um, the only criticism I have of this song is that I feel like maybe it needed a little more chutzpah or dare to it in the sense that the only comeuppance to this man, you know, killing a cow and wearing its skin is to have the coat ruined and a small case of the old blue balls. Um, I kind of feel like it would have been worth the risk of a little artistic hypocrisy to maybe have the man turned into a long leather coat for the woman to wear. Like maybe that's a bit grotesque for a Paul McCartney song, but might thought, be too far out for him. <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe that would be a more satisfying conclusion, a bit of dramatic irony mm. there. But, you know, like I say, the twist is really effective. It makes you rethink the whole song, very much in the way that Paul might want you to rethink your stance on wearing leather. So uh, it's 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 very effective for, uh, the way it, it promotes its message. And it's nowhere near as on the nose as looking for changes and I feel like if this had been on the album, maybe if they just literally just swapped the two animal rights tracks over, that this one would have been far better received. But who knows? I definitely I think it's got a lot more going for it than looking for changes. Yeah. I do like looking for changes a lot. It's very it's shorter and more concise. It gets the message across a lot. And, uh, but it's the same message still. Mm-hmm. I just think that Long Live the Coat's a better song. You know, Paul does 10 or 20 love songs per album. What's wrong with having two animal rights songs on one album? Why not? You know, I think people admire artists when they speak their minds and say what's really important to them. I can't get enough, uh, you know, spiritual songs from George Harrison. There's no such thing as too much for me. So Uh, Another um, song about God, George. Oh, really? (laughs) It's endless how many love songs we can have. Up next, we have a song that, 
I can imagine I'll be calling more interesting as a trivia piece than effective as an actual song, as per my modus operandi. But I'm always willing to have my mind changed by Ken here. This is Keep Coming Back to Love. Interestingly, this is the second songwriting collab between Paul and guitarist Hamish Stewart, with the first being The First Stone from the Flowers in the Dirt Sessions, which was the B-side for this one. And rather fittingly, Keep Coming Back to Love wound up as being one of the B-side tracks to, was it the Come On People 12-inch or was it the EP? Well, I have it on the Come On People CD. CD. Well, it was definitely yeah, so on was, CD. <laughs> yeah. Um, but considering how popular the Come On People single was, I'm, I doubt that many people heard this particular tune. But hey, um, before we carry on with the review itself, though, Ken, if this version of the band had not broken up in the wake of Linda's death, do you think that maybe Hamish Stewart would have gone on to actually get a song on an album, do, do, do you know? Do you reckon he would have to be like Denny Lane and wait for five albums to get a solo writing credit on a, on an album? That's a really good question, because you know, in the days of Wings, even in their early years, Denny had a song live to do. Henry McCullough had a song live to do. Um, so Paul was thinking early on that Wings was going to be a band where everybody contributes songs, songwriting. Denny Lane got to write more later on. Jimmy McCulloch got to write a couple of songs. Wings at the Speed of Sound, everybody got a lead vocal. He always had that in mind, I think, when it came to Wings, to have more lead vocals from other, from other members, but still maintaining that he was the leader and probably the bulk of the music would be written by McCartney anyway. But... I don't know if he felt that way about the 89, 90 or 93 tour, even though Robbie McIntosh got to do his instrumental live, Robbie's bit. Yeah, um, and um, Hamish got, got to do um, that track for Unplugged as well. They got to do twice because there was a small error in it. Uh, mm-hmm. so he, he, he was giving the lead, the lead guitarist little spots, which make, which makes sense, you know. They're, they're both helping him in this you know, transitional period of his of his career and doing it really well. I think that um, they got on pretty well, Hamish Stewart and Robbie McIntosh in particular. Um, and there was another song that Paul wrote with Hamish, which didn't come out or hasn't yet, called Is It Raining in London? Yes, which has been yeah. bootlegged. So it just shows that he was still thinking of writing occasionally with Hamish. 
So of what has come out so far, it's two songs, but you never know. You know, Linda's death, I'm sure, changed a lot of things, but I'm not sure if the band was still working together or if Paul was still employing them in the years before Linda passed. Mm-hmm. You know, from 94 yeah. through, you know, up until 97. Fair enough. Didn't, I didn't consider that, but you know, it, it's like you know, it's it's the same reason why we're not ever going to have a Wings reunion. You know, it's it uh, t- too much of it is baked in Paul's memories and you know thoughts of th- thoughts of Linda. Um, it, it also it's just, it's just mad how comparatively quick Eric Stewart and Elvis Costello got album credits though, when compared to Denny Lane, his guitarist of ten years. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. They both wrote great material with Paul, though, so the results speak for themselves, I guess. Well, I, I'm not quite sure. If I get to interview Denny Lane again, we know that when London Town came out that he had five songs on there that he co-wrote with Paul, plus there was Mull of Kintyre as well. So at that time, they were doing more writing together. Why didn't they do more prior to that? Mm-hmm. You know, you do have no words, for example. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to ask him that question. But I know Denny said to me once that Paul was always encouraging him to write. Whether it was for just himself alone or writing with him. So there was another you know, Denny, uh, Denny Lane song from um, the uh, London Town Sessions as well. Uh, what, what was it called? I'm just quickly scrolling through. Well, well, Deliver Your Children. No, there was, there was, a, there was another. Find a way somehow. Um, oh, Okay. Yeah, uh, kind of a more of a early wings, Denny bluesy rocker. That that totally could have found its way onto the album, especially maybe replacing children, children. But that's not for me to say. That is certainly not for me to say. Um, but yeah, definitely um, very very interesting period for Denny there. But yeah, let's talk about keep coming back to love, a song that. I wasn't all that impressed with, if I'm honest. Um, the the opening piano riff did get me quite excited. I thought it was something that was going to be like back in Brazil, uh, you know. Or like it, was, it, it kind of felt like Dave Brubecky, you know, at, at some ah. points. And you know, being the McCartney Two Fireman fan that I am, I was kind of hoping that the main thrust of the song would be that piano lick, but it's obviously just something catchy that Paul came up with on the spot to kick off the song with a bit of a bang. And I'm glad he did because the rest of the song is pretty darn forgettable as far as I'm concerned. Uh, compared to all the varied and memorable tracks from the Off The Ground Sessions, this one ends up feeling comparatively forgettable. Like, the moment the main backing track comes in and the two of them start singing, it kind of just sounds like a hundred other early 90s rock ballads that equally do not interest me and i hate to come across too harshly on 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 hamish here but he is the co-writer and you know he isn't as timeless as paul he just he just he just isn't and i think this song feels quite dated because of that uh you know of course their voices blend well paul points out how well their voices work together and, you know, they are able to do some of the best harmony vocals they've ever done since the Wings days. But you still need a strong song underneath to allow those vocals to shine. And I just 
cannot get past the boring melody and arrangement. Nothing's memorable, no matter how mellifluous their their singing voices are here together. And, you know, I, th I think it's worth pointing out that rather against type, off the ground, except for maybe Golden Earth Girl, doesn't have many love songs or even, or even silly love songs on it. And I think Paul was wise to keep it that way because um, it, it, it just adds another extra layer of uniqueness to the album. And I'm glad this wasn't included. Ken, rebuke, re rebuttal time. <laughs> I completely disagree with you. Oh! First of all, first of all, I, I would also be YouTube face. Oh. I, I I think um I think I owe it all to you as a love song. Hmm. Yeah, good point. Good yeah, point. I would call that a love song. But Keep Coming Back to Love has a very strong R and B feel to me. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that he wrote it with Hamish, he's got a different songwriter there that he, you know, up until that time hadn't worked with before as a writer. Hamish has, uh, you know, a huge background in R&B coming from the average white band and everything. And I sense that in a song like this, much more so than the first Stone. And vocally, they sound great together, especially on the chorus. There's a big buildup up to the chorus. And I love the long intro that we have that you seem to like a lot. Mm -hmm. I like the whole arrangement of it. And I, when I hear a song like this, I kind of wish that the two of them had tried to work more often and tried to write. You know, I, I really think of it as a strong song. It, this should not have been, you know, a bonus cut on a, on a CD single. I think this should have made the album. But again, I, do I need to repeat? It should be a double album. Yeah. No, I, I, I really like the two of them working together. I kind of wish, and, you know, I, I talked about this with you on the, the show where we each listed what we love about Paul the most and the criticisms that we have of Paul the most. I wish he did in the criticisms department. I wish he did more collaborating with other people. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of frustrating, especially if you're dealing with someone of the talent of, a, you know, a Stevie wonder, you know, why wouldn't you do more with Stevie wonder? And, and, you know, considering the fact that I love this particular song that we just mentioned, I wish he had tried to write more with Hamish Stewart. I wish he did more, even more with Elvis Costello and Eric Stewart, especially. Mm -hmm. So I, I wish that it wasn't all just one particular time period. He works with someone and then he moves on. Some of these people who he's done fantastic work with, especially the three primary ones, Danny Lane, Eric Stewart, Elvis Costello. But, you know, with these other people where he's only written a song or two here and there, um, I wish he did more with Michael Jackson, too. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I do like the two of them working together, him and Hamish. Vocally, they harmonize so well together. Hamish is, is great at harmonies. I, I like that one a lot. Really, the only, the only songs here from all these CD singles that I even, you know, would be critical of would be Sweet Sweet Memories and Down to the River. Well, speaking of sweet, sweet memories, Ken, that brings us on to our next song, which is Sweet, Sweet Memories. I know something you don't know. I want you to listen and attend.
this was one of the B-sides for Off the Ground, uh, the single version. And let's see what a proper silly love song from these sessions would have sounded like. And it is this. Um, yeah. <laughs> the main verse, chorus, verse part of this song felt very been there, done that for me. Um, mm. The instrumental parts uh, where... Julian Mendelssohn's production was able to come into play with the highlights for me. Uh, it, it does kind of have that same laid-back, ethereal, otherworldly atmosphere that he excels at, you know, doing on this album. There's some, you know, really trippy echo and wind sound effects, and you know, it, it emphasizes a literal off-the-ground feeling. Again, I'm, I'm just upset that he wasn't able to do it more across the song rather than just tack it on towards the end. There seems to be a bit of a pattern with a lot of these bonus tracks where I'm not too fussed about the main vocal part, but then it's, they've got a cool instrumental part at the end. Uh, I did like McCartney's vocal on this song, though. The harmonies are particularly on point. They've kind of got a lot of retro oohs and ahs that made it feel like almost in a classic Wings style. You know, it mm. did have that throwback nature to it, but... I just don't think McCartney's love songs, the, the straight up obvious direct, this is a song about love songs from this period are all that strong. Um, mm. it, it, it definitely runs into the run of the mill territory. Uh, it's not very timeless. It does feel quite generic Paul. And I'm sure you're probably going to, uh, Echo the same points right, 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 right back at me. So, um, to quote Dominic Fike's cover of Kiss of Venus, Ken, what's your take on it? <laughs> Pretty close to what you just said there. I mean, um, the execution of the song, I like a lot. Paul's vocals are great on it, but it's just an average song with a melody that's fairly predictable. It's not, it doesn't, you know, when you think about the master of melody, which is what McCartney is. This is not, this is not a great work of his, you know, it's enjoyable. There's certain songs that Paul has released as bonus tracks through the years that have that real poppy kind of a 70s sound to it. Could have been wings ish, you know, like turned out or something like that. That's far better than this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just an average song. I mean, I'm glad I have it, but it's not much to write home about. You know, this is one of the few songs I will say that about in Paul's, you know, career. It's just, uh, you know, what was the word you used? Pedestrian? Mm -hmm. I think that's accurate. Whenever you call this an average song, I'll just keep going, do-do-do-do, in my head. <laughs> um, Ken, are you aware of the origin of the lyrics for this song, though? It's quite fascinating, um, I did read it somewhere, but I forgot about it. Yeah, so it came from anyone... some poem, I think. Yeah, I mean, Ken, I've just done a two and a half hour episode on Blackbird singing. So I've got to admit, I was pretty ecstatic to find out that the lyrics for this song are based on a poem called On a Certain Lady at Court by one Alexander Pope, dating all the way back to 1717. Uh, sorry, 1717. And on paper, this sounds like the coolest thing ever. But in, in the way that some of McCartney's lyrics didn't transpose to poetry, uh, this poem doesn't transpose particularly well to a lyric. So 
at mm. least if, at least I've got two sides of the same coin and, and a, a direct example. I wish I'd have had this example when I was making that episode. It would have allowed me to get my point across a lot better. Maybe I'll do an episode on, on Blackbird singing and you can bring that up Definitely. as sort of new information. Awesome. Um, <laughs> really enjoyed Blackbird singing, though, a lot more than I thought I would. Chasing the Cherry is one of his best written works. It's so good. Um, I've got to read the book over. It's been a while, you know. It's interesting to read lyrics to, to you know, for lyrics to, to the poetry that he's done that he didn't use in songs. Well, he said in an interview, I think, with CNN that some of the poems could be songs in the future. And that hasn't happened, unfortunately. Uh, hmm. Although one cool highlight for me, um, It's Not On is included in there uh, from the okay. uh, Pops of Peace Pipes archive Pipes. collection. Yeah. And it's got two extra lines in it that's not included on the final mix of the album. And uh, it's like, and his ties pressed and cleaned, uh, pressed clean every day. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. I was like, oh, that, that adds a little something something to it. I really, I really did enjoy that. Um, you sound like Paul there. Yeah, you know. You sound <laughs> like the record. <laughs> Look at the average person, Ken. Do, 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 do. From uh, Sweet Sweet Memories, we're going to go on to a song now that is clearly based on mine and Ken's fashion sense. This is Style Style. style style please tell me your thoughts on style style excellent excellent song you know i love songs that that paul does that doesn't sound like anything else he's done before and this is one of those songs it's very distinctive i love the melody i love his vocals i love when he sings in a high range which he does a lot he builds on everything especially that i guess you'd call it the coda you know, she's got style, what is it, in her pockets, you know, that, that mm -hmm. whole line there. And then he sings it, you know, higher later on in the song towards the end. Um, it goes on for six minutes, and yet I, I never feel like it's too long at all. You know, I, there's so many aspects to loving McCartney's music. First and foremost, the melody. Second, his voice. You know, third, the arrangement. And then, you know... Lyrics usually come last for me, even though he's written some great lyrics through the years. But I love the whole arrangement of this particular song and sounded very much, very contemporary for that time, I think. I like it a lot. 
Oh, folks, I feel like I'm going to be upset. Feel, whenever this happens, I feel I feel like I'm like upsetting a, a, one of my own family members here. Cause, oh, I, okay, look, Ken. The moment I heard the phrase, she's got an American accent from her head to her toes. I was like, oh, no, here we go. This is going to be another generic Linda love song. And uh, yeah, this is this is just how I feel about about this track. Um, I feel like it's trying to harken back to a younger Paul that really doesn't exist anymore, but n- not in the way like he did, like say with Girlfriend, where he's doing it with a knowing nod and a wink. Like, look, compare this to We Got Married or Distractions from the last album, two songs that are much more appropriately middle-aged and mature in their themes of love. And the contrast just becomes all the, all, 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 all the clearer for me. Um, I, I found these lyrics to be quite tedious. I mean, I do get that it's nice that Paul's saying something more specific, like saying that she has style rather than just saying she's amazing, she's beautiful, I love her, blah, blah, blah. But for me, this was one of those McCartney songs that literally, not just figuratively, says the same thing over and over and doesn't progress whatsoever. Fortunately, though, I thought the music, the instrumentation, especially from the uh, second half onwards, was incredibly strong. Uh, it, it, it starts with the uh, the uh, guitar solo right through to the fade out at the end, and the tightness of the band just shines through. Like mm. you, you, there's this great little shuffle of a beat. There's this wicked descending down the rabbit hole like guitar riff that I really wish had been present throughout the entire song. You've got some fantastic ooze that were just a joy and. It makes the first half worth it for me. Though, at the start, I noticed that the guitar tone was very reminiscent of Looking for Changes, that... And, you know, there's no other sound like that on any other album. And I just like songs that are very specific to a certain time and place. And when I heard that, I was like, yep, this is an off-the-ground era song. This is Stuart McIntosh and Mendelssohn coming together with that very unique sound I really did enjoy that um, and there was another part of the song where I was like where have I heard that before and there it is whoa whoa backing vocals that were very fun and football chanty uh, it did it did kind of kind of have that uh, thrust to it I was like where have I where have I heard these before and then I realized they are without alteration from the Steve Anderson deliverance dub and DJ <laughs> mixes. Dun, 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 dun. And I was like, oh, that's where they come from. Very interesting. So, yeah. Very good. Because I, I don't spend too much time on all the different remixes of Paul's. So, good on you. Yeah, I was I was I was glad I spotted that. It was driving me mad for about an hour. I was like, where have I heard that? I was like, I was going through all his discography. I was like, no, it's not on there. It wasn't from Uwe Soleil. Where have I heard those woes before? Mm. Um, yeah. Overall, I'm I'm fifty fifty on this one. Not particularly fussed with the first half, especially the lyricism. But when it when it gets into just Julian Mendelssohn being the awesome laid back kind of. Uh, ethereal producer with a kind of fun beat I, I i enjoyed it for what it was okay you know he, listening to you talk about these tracks and and mentioning hamish and robbie i remember when off the ground first came out and paul was saying this is more of a band album mm-hmm. 
whereas Flowers in the Dirt, you didn't fully have the band yet at the time, and there were different musicians and different engineers on different tracks and everything. Here, it's the same group of musicians on every song. Do you get the feeling when you listen to the album and even these bonus tracks that it sounds more of a band? Mm-hmm. Do you? I'm asking you. Oh, oh no, definitely. Um, it definitely feels like songs that they practiced as a group. For I mean, I know that there were quite um, extensive rehearsals for this album, and you can tell it's not like Pepper, where it's like uh, we really can't play these songs live. Even all of these bonus B-side tracks, they all feel like songs that they could have taken on the road at a, at any point and just dropped mm. straight away. Good point. Yeah, I would agree. And one of them did. Uh, I'm sure that'll be in my notes <laughs> shortly. Um, look, Ken, Ken, I can't imagine doing this podcast without you. <laughs> and we- <laughs> I, I see where we're going here. <laughs> and with that in mind, I think it's time we moved on to I Can't Imagine. For me to say what I'm about to say Could take a bit of courage But I can summon up enough for this and maybe more This song was the B-side for the Come On People 7-inch single, as well as the EP. And that's the imagery of it I have for this one. Um, Ken, I can't imagine coming up with a more hilarious way of phrasing this question. So please enlighten me on your thoughts on I Can't Imagine. Amazing song. It's even strong enough to be an A-side for a single, as far as I'm concerned. Oh. Uh, you're you're, you're going to go. You're not going to oh, agree. No. I can tell. No, really, it's um, melodically, it just is so infectious. The verses, the chorus, everything flows really well. The sound of his voice is fantastic. I love the whole production. I love the way it ends with all the guitar playing that goes on for a while. Um, I think it's brilliant from start to finish. It's just a very well executed song, you know, uh, the chorus alone when you have a great chorus where you know you can't get it out of your head this is one of those songs for me and i i was also dumbfounded that this is you know a bonus track i am dumbfounded that you like it this much ken the the, uh. the chorus has probably the most clunky awkwardly delivered McCartney line ever. It's so wordy. I can't be- I can't imagine how it feels to never have been in love like this before. I can't... Let me, let me try I'll tell that again. I can't imagine how it feels to never be in love like this before. That's such a poor lyric. Like, he's tripping over himself to get those words to fit the beats. It's meant to guide the track, and he's pathetically trying to force this square peg in a round hole. Like, you know the way like little kids with their hammer toys trying to bash it in? Didn't like, didn't like this one. 
at all. Again, for the first half, it seems like I'm seeing a parallel here because, like you say, that uh, last little uh, Mediterranean-style acoustic guitar sound was very charming. Really enjoyed that a lot. Mm. Apparently, it's a 45-second or so instrumental segment taken out of a four-minute instrumental segment that was going to be a, a full song for the album. It was presented to Julian Mendelssohn that way, called On a Pedestal. That's never okay. been released in full. It's never been bootlegged. Uh, that would be a lovely one for the archive release. Well, actually, just, just on that, even with On a Pedestal, we've only got 23 songs, and I've read many sources saying that there were 25 songs put forward for this album. So we might even get three un- unreleased tracks on an archive release. That could be very fun indeed. If um, you read the um, the book Eight Arms to Hold You, it lists a whole bunch of other titles at that time that Paul was recording that, I, that we've never heard before. Yeah. I don't know if they're finished songs or what, but maybe we'll find out in a box set. But that chorus, you know, I, I think you're really overdoing it. <laughs> you know, analyzing a line like that, but just hearing the way that he sings it. And even though Paul didn't invent this, he is, he is a master at, you know, singing a line an octave higher than he did the previous one. And it adds so much to the song, you know, I can't imagine how it feels. I've never been in love like this before. I don't want to yeah. talk about it. Then it's, I don't want to talk about it. You know, it's a, you know, later on, it's just, it adds so much and it's so damn catchy, you know? I like catchy music. I didn't find this catchy, Ken. Uh, this is another B-side that just left no impression on me. I feel like, you know, that a re- uh, there's, there's a big part of me that wonders whether a reason the, a lot of people out there love these B-sides so much, and I'm not saying this is you personally or anything, but that a lot of these B-sides are the kind of generic, silly love songs that people were felt like they were missing from off the ground. And now that I'm hearing them, I'm like, I'm glad these were held off the final album. The band, each giving these a score out of 10, I'm glad that they gave this one a lower one than the rest of the stuff, because to me... This is the weaker material. I don't want to be too harsh on this one. I'm glad we're getting a bit of a back and forth on this one, seeing some different opinions. But um, I don't know, going back to that chorus, Ken, it wasn't even me overthinking it. Just naturally when I first heard it, I was like, oh, ooh, I don't I, I don't like the way that sounds at all. And that's all McCartney has to do, really, is make stuff that sounds good to me. And, you know, he, it's not going to be a home run every time, is it? It's not going to be a home run every every time. No, um, never is with anybody. Right. Except Next. the Beatles. Except, 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 except <laughs> the Beatles. Even, you know, I mean, uh, I, I was doing a poll the, the other night and I was just thinking, thinking to myself, who doesn't like Mr. Moonlight? It's still a great track. It's still awesome. John's vocals are incredible on it. Apparently a lot of people. The one yeah. saving grace to some people happens to be John's vocals on it. Yeah. And um, anytime somebody says it's the worst Beatles song, oh, I don't know. You know, <laughs> even the worst Beatles song, I still prefer having in my collection. You know, I'm happy mm-hmm. to have everything that they put in their catalog. You know, I don't regret buying any of their songs. No, um, I, I don't have buyer's remorse for any, for any Beatles album at all. Yeah. Yeah. Or any Paul album, um, for that matter. Um, 
speaking of stuff I've already bought, te- technically uh, we've already spoken about this song during our full off-the-ground dis- discussion, but I do just want to briefly touch on it, even if we do tread ground a little bit. Uh, this is the full-length version of Cosmically Conscious. As we know, Ken, a snippet of this song was a secret track at the end of Come On People. Uh, that was a, um, That's about two minutes, that version. This full one's about right. four minutes, 39. It was the B-side to the off-the-ground single as well as the EP. Um, for the sake of brevity, Ken, I'm just going to say that I adore this song. It's easily one of the best songs on the sessions. I consider it in the top three songs McCartney sat on for decades before publicly releasing officially um all my same points from before are still there it has a wonderful mantra like lyric to it that's impossible not to get caught up in that hypnotic power um the message itself unlike most real mantras has actual real life applications to it um, you know you do have to be cos- cosmically conscious um and there's no greater onomatopoeia than it's a joy joy such a joy joy you do feel joyous when you're when you're singing that it's it's delightfully silly but also subversively quite serious on the other side as well um the actual melody is delightfully simple and to the point i've always been a fan of the most basic mccartney melody like melodies um you know they stay with you the longest this is a prime example of that and thanks to wixie and julian mendelson you get these beautiful little musical flourishes as well and something i've i've only been able to vocalize now is what I like about it is, is that it does feel cosmic and from another plane of consciousness, but it doesn't go into the uh, drug-based or psychedelic feel. It doesn't try and conflate those two notions together. This is definitely, it's all in the mind kind of a, a track. And it's, and it's not and you know an LSD-based song or anything like that. And that was certainly something I appreciated. Um, hmm. Is it safe to say, Ken, that your thoughts on this song have largely stayed the same since our last chat? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I, I appreciate your point of view on this, and there is a beauty and a simplicity to the song the way that it is. You know, I sometimes have to wrestle with the fact that I might have a conservative point of view on some things, which conflicts with being a Beatle fan where they broke all the rules of what was done in the recording <laughs> studio and with songwriting and everything, I tend to look at songs and not that every song has to have verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Not every song has to be that way. Um, in fact, there are plenty of songs 
that only have verses without choruses, especially in folk music. But when you're dealing with something like this, where it's basically a chorus and not much else, and granted, it's a great melody, it's hypnotic, it works for the message. I like it on that level, but I don't see, you know, a lot of effort being put into the song as a composition, mm-hmm. you know. And throughout Paul's career, there are certain songs where, you know, uh, I, I think I pointed out that would be something. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of effort in the composition and there's other reasons why you appreciate the recording of it. You know, is Wild Honey Pie really a song? Is there really much to Wild Honey Pie? Some people may love it. You know, um, can you take me back? Is, there, is that really a, a full song? When you have what I consider to be, you know, more like just one element of a song, a chorus, it's kind of like, whenever Paul and Ringo perform Give Peace a Chance and they only do the chorus of the song, it's a great chorus. But if that's all that existed of Give Peace a Chance Mm -hmm. and it's a great message, I wouldn't think that much of it as a composition. There's more to it. You've got verses and words that go leading into Give Peace a Chance. So, you know, I I love the fact that, you know, Cosmically Conscious is without a doubt a great melody. He sings it so well. If you ever get a chance, watch the performance online of Paul doing this at um, Radio City Music Hall, the David Lynch event, um, Change Begins Within, and he sings it so well. And it's so great to see the crowd singing along with it. Everybody, all the the great musicians on stage singing the song and Ringo drumming in the back, you know, along with Abe. Um, And it's, you know, for that message, especially for... You know, um, the the meditation angle from David Lynch, Mm -hmm. you know, using that, it was so perfect for a concert like that. Um, Yeah, it's fine as a bonus track, but it's not, to me, a complete song. Would you say, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, that this might be the backwards traveler of these sessions, wherein... McCartney was right to truncate it down and just use a snippet of it rather than do the full thing. Boy, how you how you connect these songs together. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it works as a medley where it's not a completely finished song and then it goes in the cufflink and it really does work that way. Yeah. You know? Um because the, the it's kind of like it, I always use the, the oh. example of, and I'm sure some people will not appreciate my saying this, but I've always said Christmas time is here again. It's just a chorus. There's nothing else in the song. There are no verses, nothing. It works in the context of it being part of a Christmas message from the Beatles, 1967. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not really a full song to me. And some mm-hmm. people look at it as a real song. So maybe I'm old fashioned in that <laughs> regard. You know, I think that a little bit more effort should be put into the full composition of things, but just the chorus alone isn't enough. Yeah. Perhaps this might be a track that's resting on the fact that it was written uh, during the Rishi Kesh sessions and Paul wouldn't want to change anything that went back to that time. He's very much one of those people who believes in the magic of the first the first draft of things and, you know, 
I guess maybe he just didn't want to fix what he didn't consider to be broken, I guess. But um okay. as I, is his right. As is his right. But you know, I still I still enjoy the song for for what it is. It's it's certainly one that I'd just like to pop on in the background and just kind of vibe with, I guess would be the correct the correct quote. But uh yeah, nothing too uh strenuous to un- to unpack there. It's quite a surface level song. I, th- I think I think you'd agree. So uh we're gonna move swiftly on to a song that is uh is referencing the fact that I've given quite a few of these songs a good kicking. This is kicked around no more. I never knew about the off the ground singles is that not only were there variations between the vinyl releases but the same applied to the cd and as far as i'm aware kicked around no more was an exclusive release for the hope of deliverance cd single meaning that until we get that archive release ken you cannot get all the off the ground content on vinyl which i thought was quite interesting and it's a little a little subtle hint at the brief period where CD took over. This is the you know early nineties is the is the real transition to the domination of CD. And there's a couple of Tom Waits albums from this period that you cannot get on vinyl because mm. about four were printed and the rest were done on CD and you can only really get it on CD. Um, you know what, Ken? Uh, yeah. I was going to say no more puns. Just tell me what you think about the song. <laughs> First of all, let me just say that I was always someone that you know I just had to have every song regardless mm-hmm. of what format it came out in. If there were more songs on the CD single, I would get the CD single. Oh, yeah. You know, if there was something that was only available on vinyl, then I would have to buy the vinyl. But I was not someone that had to buy every every format, you know. As long as I got all the songs, I didn't care how I got them. But um, Kicked Around No More is another gem. Very yes. slow, great melody, a nice buildup in there. In some ways... I don't even know why. I, I guess because of the length of the song. I think Kicked Around No More is maybe five and a half minutes. I'm not sure. Six minutes. Sort of reminiscent of Some People Never Know. And the fact that it's slow to mid-tempo goes on for quite a while. But the melody is absolutely exquisite. Paul's vocals are just outstanding. Um, it's another one of those songs that if you put it on the album would be <laughs> probably another great ballad that unless it's a single and an A-side, most people don't know it. You know, like The Loveliest Thing was. You know, it does, mm. that was a great song too. <clears throat> but Kicked Around No More is fantastic, you know. I, I love the entire arrangement. You know, it's just at the right tempo. 
everything about it. You know, it's it, it's it, Paul has this incredible gift, as I've said many times, for melody and songs that just work together well. When you've got different sections of songs where it just flows, like there's no other way you could have written it other than this way. Mm-hmm. And um, I definitely feel that way about "Kicked Around No More." I don't know if that would have been like a, you know, a hit record. <coughs> But I think it's definitely a very strong song. Certainly worthy of being on an album. It should have been on the album, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know what, Ken? I'm just glad that we've got a, another song from this selection that I really enjoyed. Um, as I mentioned in our original Off The Ground episode, I adore the kind of easy listening atmosphere that this album kind of goes for. And that's what, exactly what you get with Kicked Around No More. Uh, everything about the song, the melody, the production, the singing, the instrumentation is all done in a way where I can imagine it being on the final album without spoiling any of the delicate balance. Uh, you know, if you get rid of Get Out of My Way, pop this straight on, I wouldn't have any problems whatsoever. What's wrong uh, with Get Out of My Way? Oh, it's it's generic driving rock dross. It's not very good. Uh, <laughs> it was supposed to be like in a Chuck Berry vein. Yeah. when he wrote this when, when when people say that's a song Paul Rook could have written in his sleep that's one of the few times where I do kind of agree with the sentiment but with this one it's the ex- well lyrically for one it's the exact kind of more mature Paul from his era I find myself being drawn to uh, it was very impressionistic meaning I could largely apply whatever I wanted to it um, having Paul do a ballad kind of about more depressive themes and self-loathing was quite interesting. But the main character in the song is clearly a very like hard done by souls through a lot of suffering. And he doesn't get too specific with it. He keeps it nice and ambiguous. Though like phrases like, I don't want to know anymore. And the change from don't want to be kicked around no more to ain't going to be kicked around no more. Had a a slight undercurrent darkness to it, which I thought was very interesting. Also, the line, the water underneath the bridge can't keep a secret. That's so evocative. And probably my favourite single line from any of these bonus tracks. It was really well done. Um, the harmonies felt like they were from like tug of war slash pipes of peace, like mm. average person or so bad. Again, lots of ooing and ahhing, that nostalgic warm feeling kept coming back, but it never felt pandering. Like like um, Domino's, for example, that that had 60s throwbacks, but it didn't feel like it was Paul just going, remember Sitar? You know, this this <laughs> this this had a real kind of class to it. I love the uh, the muted instrumentation as well. It it really furthers Mendelssohn's like dreamscapes that he builds on this album. Like the guitar solo sounds like it's coming from the, the room next door or like it's coming from underwater or something. Another very, very cool texture. And I love how all of Paul's vocals have this faded echo and they literally blend into one another. Like it it almost feels like a memory or something like that. Very, very fun indeed. And maybe a lot of this this praise has to do with my expectations. Because like when I saw a title like kicked around no more, I was thinking like, don't get around much anymore, like a kind of like old <laughs> rock and roll kind of tune. And it's really not that. But, you know, after, you know, so many kind of limp-wristed love songs, I was kind of happy just to have something with a little more meat to it. I think this is a runaway success. 
and mm. a great example of tracks that, yeah, should have been on the final album. Great comments there, Sam. I was just remembering maybe one of the reasons why I was thinking of Some People Never Know with this song is because at the very end, both songs end with percussion. Mm. Just percussion, which I think is kind of cool. Strip away everything else and just leave the percussion there. I like that. And I like what you said about, you know, the, there's a long sustained note with harmonies going into the next verse. Mm -hmm. I like that effect on that song. And the arrangement's fantastic on it. Mendelssohn's very underrated in terms of McCartney uh, producers. You know, everyone loves Nigel Godrich. Everyone loves, um, uh, well, everyone loves Paul and George Martin. Uh, um, but I think David Kahn, maybe. Yeah, he's he's definitely uh, someone who needs to be uh, bumped bumped up the rankings a little bit. Maybe if I ever get to talk to him, I'll be able to to, uh, to uh, tell him just as much. But um, you know, I'd be okay. curious to see if if Paul ever releases like two albums in a row with the same producer. But two kind of like that with David Kahn in a way, mm. you know, with Memory Almost Full and Driving Rain, even though Chaos and Creation was in the middle. But usually when he, when he picks a producer, it's one album and move on to another one. Two more so. albums with Kanye West as the producer. There you bring go. It, bring it on, Paul. I want to see it. Now, up next, Ken, we have a song that I discussed at some length with your co-host, Alan Cozen, for our episode on Up Close that we did a while back. Prepare for naughty words abound, everyone. This is the notorious Big Boys Bickering. The last song, Big Boys Bickering, is another song that can only be found on the Hope of Deliverance CD single. And based on this and the last song, I've actually gone ahead and picked up a copy of the uh, CD single from eBay. Like, like yourself, Ken, I just need the music on some sort of format. I've, I've got to have it all. Um, <laughs> though, unfortunately, the only 12-inch of... Hope of Deliverance that I can find is a very overpriced copy from Italy that I cannot that I cannot justify purchasing at all. Uh, hopefully, I will find one further in the future. But um, you know, Ken, this is a song whose title could easily be used to sum up our conversations together. So, before we start bickering, boy, uh, please state your feelings. I'm glad that he did it. I wish that Paul would write stuff that's more politically aware. It's very it's very rare when he does it, you know, like give Ireland back to the Irish or, or more recently, despite repeated warnings. 
but I, I like the message in the song. I think the lyrics are really strong. Kind of interesting how this is more of a folk song. And mm. I actually think that the accordion lends a lot to the arrangement here. You don't necessarily, you know, Wicks plays his part with the accordion every now and then, like he did with uh, Here, There, and Everywhere. It's a different arrangement with Unplugged. But, um, yeah, I think when it's stripped down to being more of an acoustic song, you're focusing a lot more on what's being said in the song. And it's a very strong message, you know, you know, about politicians of the world, how they're, you know, ruining things for all of us. Um, how it's possible to have a war or a nuclear war. They're going to blow us all away. You know, I, I like the fact that Paul shows that he that he has a, you know, a conscious about these things. And I don't think he does it enough. But then that's his style. He's got to do with with what he's comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just like I admire him for writing animal rights songs, too. I do love that. How going from uh, the new uh, the uh, 1989 tour booklet where he was saying things like write to your local politician to help green causes, and like four years later he's like ah, they're fucking it up for everyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, I do. I do like how kind of bitter this song is in its in its feeling. Um, I mean, I remember this one being a track that I thought I wasn't going to like at all. There was definitely a lot of uh, negativity towards this one online and I was like oh no oh, this, is gonna be, this is gonna be really cringeworthy and I can distinctly recall listening to it for the first time and just being utterly won over um, it seems to exist in this in-between world of being both kind of cutesy and kitsch whilst also being incredibly earnest and serious at the same time which is a, which is a fun place to create music and like, mm. like, like you say, that that folksy arrangement with the accordion and the slide guitar, it reminded me of a more like a southern states kind of kind of ballad, you know, almost mm. like a, almost like a, something from like the Civil War era. Like it does sound like it could come from the American Big Book of Standards that like right. predates all music. And I've always been a big sucker for accordion, and Wixie plays his heart out on this. It's a unique texture for a studio recording. I'm glad he did it. Uh, I'm surprised he hasn't used it more since, really. Um, I, you know, I'm not Calico Skies. It's on Calico Skies. Yeah. Well, live. Oh, right, 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 yeah. right. And the track that was recorded on the day I was born. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, he did that for you. He did that so. for me. Say to yes. Sam. Um, I think there may be people who might disagree with me uh, about this, but I think the vocal melody is delightfully atypical. Uh, it doesn't flow perfectly, but what it does do is when you get to the all-important big swear word, it makes it stand out and really pop at you. And mm. you mentioned this earlier, but it's it's good that he uses it for effect. He hasn't used it flippantly, you know, this is effing jet. Woo, woo. You know, he, he never just did that. And he was saving it up for something big and important. And because of that, it does hit harder. And you are able to take it, you know, a swear word more seriously at face value without being distracted by the fact that it is a swear word. I know Paul has offhandedly mentioned that 
He's, he uses one F-bomb every 50 years, so we're going to have to stick around for the next 50 to uh, see see what it's going to be. May, maybe on Ram, re, reimagine, you know, he'll he'll just put one in backwards at the end or, or something, you know, a bit of, bit of backmasking. But, um, you know, as someone living through UK politics in 2022, and I'm sure with you living through American politics in 2022, it's 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 hard not to say that Paul really hit the nail on the head with this one. Um, mm. It's it it's not particularly complicated. The message gets across very effectively. Um, I think the song's a resounding success on all fronts, and it was a delightful addition to the up close gig as well. I would agree. I just um, it doesn't bother you that he used the f word in the sing along part at the end. No, that's everybody. Fun. No, no, no. That that's him being subversive. That's him going right. How far can I push this? What can I get? What can I get away with as Sir Paul McCartney? Was he Sir at this point? I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, I think that's just him having a little. Like I'm never going to do this again. I may as well get my money's worth out of this f bomb. And uh-huh. he, he definitely does. He definitely does. Okay. Um, they could have slipped an f bomb into uh, hell into helter skelter, and I reckon people would have would have accepted it. Although you can hear someone go, you know, uh, in Hey Jude, uh, if you listen yes. to if you listen to the right, uh, I think it's the right speaker. If you really press your ear up against it, mm-hmm. um, until it was even said, I never I never heard it. But now you have to make yourself hear it. Yes, and now listen you can't the hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, dude! No, oh, there, 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 there it was again. Um, speaking of uh, songs that reminded me of uh, something from Snover B- BCCR, um, we're going to now move on to "Down to the River," a song that Ken said he's not actually particularly fond of. So I'm interested here. Down by the River is a song that is described in Club Sandwich number 59 as being written over a recent morning's muesli, and it wound up as one of the tracks for the uh, EP for Come On People. However, what sets it aside from other tracks in this list is that it was actually played live before ever being recorded in the studio. It was played a total of four times during the Unplugged 91 tour and once at the Mean Fiddler for a New Year's gig for Carlton TV in 93. Uh, after it was determined not to be an album track, so it's clearly one that Paul had a soft spot for. Um, so, Ken, is this a song you you want to tie in a sack and throw down the titular river? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> I wouldn't say that about any Beatle or solo Beatle song. <laughs> you know that. Why, why are you asking me that? But it's just, it's so predictable. Hmm. There's not much effort behind it. You know, um, probably if you gave me those set of lyrics without hearing the song, I would think it would sound like this. Let me take you down to the river where the river flows. You know, okay. And even, it, there's just very little effort put behind the composition. It sounds like, and we discussed this, there are a few songs here and there from Paul that sounds like he wrote it in five minutes. And this is one of those songs. By the way, I forgot to mention this before. One of the things that always puzzled me since we brought up Cosmically Conscious is that when you listen to the full version of it, at the very end, it cuts it cuts right into Down to the River. Have you noticed that? Uh, going on to Yeah, it's like a five-minute version. But if you listen at the very end, it's like, why did they do that? Was there some bad edit made there? I don't know why. It's only got maybe, I don't know. Oh, yeah. 20 seconds of Down to the River. What's that I never about? quite understood that. What's that about? Oh, my gosh. Sorry. My, my... First time I heard that, I thought, this is a mistake. There's some <laughs> like bad pressing made here. Someone's just left the tape running. <laughs> yeah. And they're letting it go out like this. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's not much to Down to the River. See. And I was I was at that show, The Mean Fiddler. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, uh, another another moment where Ken makes me green with envy, folks. There, there we are. Oh my uh, gosh! Quite oh. possibly, you know. I always say that the Wings Over America show that I saw in '76 was the greatest concert ever. You can make a strong case in point for the Meat Fiddler because I was only probably 20 feet away from him throughout <laughs> the whole show, but standing through the whole thing. Didn't move one inch. You were the standing stone. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of standing stones there. You know, you really couldn't budge. You were stuck in the same spot. I couldn't move my feet anywhere. And uh, my feet were quite tired by the end of the the concert, but there's nothing quite like seeing one of your favorite performers in a really intimate setting like this. And um, that was one of the biggest, biggest surprises not planned of my life. (laughs) Because <laughs> I went to England thinking it was going to be, you know, spend time in London, spend time in Liverpool. Oh, it was that, it was that time. That was the main. Oh, you've mentioned this. That was the main. Yeah. Oh, um, and it wasn't yeah. until we landed in London that I even found out about this concert. I didn't know it was going to happen. So all my plans had to change. You know, whatever I thought about doing in London, the first thing, most important, I got to get tickets to this. So and I managed to buy tickets off the street from somebody and I was taking a risk because she didn't know if they were legitimate tickets or not mm. but they were and uh, one of the greatest moments seeing Paul I was also very fortunate to see both shows in New York City for Up Close oh, you know so at the you've Ed seen Big Boys Bickering live you've seen Down to the River live you really are yeah. the perfect guest to have, have for, <laughs> for were you at the David Lynch show as well yes <laughs> Oh I was. <laughs> How can I not go to that? Uh, <laughs> oh, that's insane. 
Uh, I'm not going to pry it pry any further because it's just going to break my heart too much. It really is. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Um, in direct <laughs> contrast to you, though, Ken, um, I'm actually really glad this song exists because we've got three songs in a row that I've been positive with. I really enjoyed this this uh, this this one. It sets out with a basic objective, do a simple skiffle esque gospel like rhythm and bluesy kind of track, and I kind of think it does it it does it well. Um, it reminded me of much more classic hot hits and cold cuts compilation style uh, McCartney unreleased material. It's acoustic, it's catchy, uh, it's very basic, like you say. It probably doesn't progress in the way that other people would want to. But for me, this this could be a bonus track on any of his albums in the in the seventies, and I mean that in a good way. Although. In retrospect, this clearly is also a very post-MTV Unplugged song. It makes sense that it was part of the Unplugged tour. Um, but, you know, technically it sounds like no other McCartney song recorded at this point. You know, yes, we do have more recording, but this is the first instance of Paul using the harmonica or the mouth organ. And, you know, you don't have to be a genius to know why this, you know, indirect reference to his earliest Beatles days is not just so charming and adds a lot of nostalgia. Again, I really enjoyed that that texture to the track. Um, you know, for, for me, Ken, someone who is always accused of overthinking things, um, this is a song I didn't have to think about too much. I just enjoyed it from the get-go. Mm. Um, you know, negative songs t- tend to promote a greater response in my notes, especially in terms of length. But with Down to the River, it's a earnestly straight to the point song that I, I enjoy with no strings attached. I didn't have to think that hard about it. It's just a fun little acoustic shuffler. It does its job. It gets in and out. Um, I mean, there's only so many ways you can write a song about going down to the river. There's a long tradition, a long history of people going down to the river. Take me to the take me to the river. Uh, rolling on the river. Uh, <laughs> and whilst this is isn't up there with the rest of them. This is one of those, I call them delightful throwaways. You know, it's B-side material, but it doesn't mean mm. I, I, I dislike it in, in any way, but it is what it is. I accept that. So, okay, fair enough. I'll have to try and listen sometimes with your ears. Down to the river. It's fun. It's fun. You know, I'm, I'm definitely going to play it, play it with some friends tonight. Uh, I'll, I'll make them learn the chords. It's definitely, it's probably more of a drinking song than anything uh, in that long tradition of going down to the river kind of okay. tunes, you know? Um, and I'd rather, I'd rather sing Moloch and Tire for a drinking oh. song than sing it. <laughs> a a d- delightfully easy song to play on guitar. I'll just play that top E, strum, strum, E strum strum, you've got you've got the song, it's there. Mm. Although I haven't been able to find the Campbelltown pipe band to uh, come to my friend's garage, uh, so you know I'll have to I'll, I'll have to wait on that. Maybe, maybe I can find one Scott to uh, come down and play. Hopefully, anyway. when you when you have a major birthday coming up, we'll set it up. Yes, we'll hire him. The entire Campbelltown, no, but I want the originals. I want the originals from the original recording, all struggling. It's <laughs> barely getting get the air out. Finally, everyone, we have our only instrumental from these sessions and a song I've been using for the longest time on Poor or Nothing in my housekeeping segments where I have music in the background. And say if 
I've got a 20 second gap that needs to be plugged in between two songs just so I cover the entire bit of me doing my plugs and news and emails and stuff. Throw in Soggy Noodle. This is Soggy Noodle. It's a 28 seconds long instrumental with Paul playing electric guitar. It was used at the beginning of the off the ground promo film and Mm. was released as the final B side on the off the ground CD single. Um, Ken, as much as I enjoy lengthy back and forth debates about songs, mostly just because I enjoy talking to you so much, I'm guessing your thoughts on this track are going to be about as long as the song itself. Am I wrong? You're right. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no, I mean, what is there anything memorable about it, really? <laughs> if you think about it. I remember when when the Wildlife archival box set came out, and there were all these little instrumentals that Paul put in there that lasted, you know, six seconds here and 12 seconds there. It's like, what is the purpose of this? <laughs> is it really is it really that memorable? You know, I, I don't know. I suppose for, you know, people like us who have to have everything, it serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. But no, I suppose, you know, because it was lifted off the, the promo for off the ground. Doesn't mean it has to come out this way, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. I feel, I feel like maybe Paul had written 499 songs at that point that were copyrighted. He's like... Oh, you know, I kind of want to be on Make it 500, (laughs) soggy noodle (laughs) (laughs) As much as I find this to be an enjoyably quirky curiosity in McCartney's songbook I really cannot bring myself to say anything more than that Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that you know, you can't make an artistic or technically impressive instrumental less than 30 seconds I'm sure I could be flooded with dozens of examples you know, to the contrary. I just don't think that Paul achieved that here. Um, It almost feels like uh, he wasn't even aware he was being recorded at the time. Like, it's just something that he was noodling about in the studio and Julian Mendelssohn, you know, play play it, Tony. You know, he just hit hit the record button and uh, he just kept it. Um, maybe it was meant to be like one of his classic Link tracks um, like you know Be What You See Link or Cuff Link or uh, Bit Bop Link but mm. um, he tends to title them with Link and they kind of seem to have some kind of right. thematic connection to other parts of the album that doesn't exist here and it, it is exactly what it says on the tin it is just Paul noodling on his guitar for 20 or so seconds it's pretty aimless, pretty uninspired. And you are right. It, it, if I had to pick a song that barely feels like it should be even a bonus track to begin with, it's probably this song. Like, I'd rather listen to Women and Wives Studio Take One than... than That's than, actually than, very interesting. Yeah. Women and Wives. 
There's other lyrics in there too. Well, just to see how a song evolves and how it changes. Hear me, but, women and wives. Hear me, husband and lover. No, 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 no. Now, before I start on a women and wives rant, uh, I'll just say, yeah, uh, soggy noodle. It is what it is, Ken. Uh, but you is- know, since you mentioned it, you know something like Bip Bop Link and Mumbo Link. Yeah, love them those both. are those those are memorable. Yeah, you know. I, you know, normally I don't sing for people once, you know, once at a rare moment, only for you. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I can hear them in my head. I know exactly how they go. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how Soggy Noodle goes. That strumming of the guitars on the bit bot link. It's so fun. And you are, and you're right. It is memorable. Whereas, you know, Soggy, like, That'd be a great question at like a Beatles convention, you know, if there's a quiz where you have to do the melody to something, you know, someone, mm. you know, question one, did the melody to bit bop, okay. Now do the melody to Soggy Noodle for the final million dollar question. <laughs> oh, can I can I phone a friend? <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's definitely one of those songs that Paul would struggle to recall in an interview as well. Like, so Paul, do you remember Soggy Needle? Um, anyway, so Let It Be came to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about my mom, and uh, yesterday I came in a dream. Nope, don't dodge the question, Paul. Talk about Soggy Noodle. I can't, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but there we are, folks. We've come to the end of the uh, list of songs from... These sessions, all very interesting. They've all got something to talk about. Uh, I wouldn't call any of these flat out boring uh, or like uh, completely historically insignificant. They all definitely add to the narrative of the off the ground sessions. They do fill in a lot of gaps. What were they experimenting with? What sound were they more focused towards? Um, what kind of themes do they want to touch on more? But, you know, at the end of the show here, one last question. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make you answer this, Ken. Is there any material that you would have taken off to include material from these bonus tracks? Could you could you make that cut? Maybe to include I would prefer not to, but God, I like every song on off the ground, really. <laughs> it's just, it's I'm serious. The only the only criticism I ever would make about off the ground is that I do think wine dark open sea goes on for too long. Um, same way that motor of love goes on too long. Yeah. You know, you can, you can take a minute off. Um, no, I, I love off the ground, but there are songs from the bonus tracks that I like more than what's on mm-hmm. off the ground. So if I had to take something off, maybe wine, dark open sea, I would definitely, I would definitely long leather coat. Kicked around no more. I can't imagine, which I know you don't like. Those, those are, and I do like keep coming back to love a lot. I don't know if I would necessarily put big voice bickering on there, but definitely long leather coat or um, kicked around no more should be on the album. I would say. Um, but I was going to say, um, on your hope of deliverance CD single, does it have the explicit language warning on it? To warn, well, to warn parents not to buy it for their kids. Let me just see here. Because if off the ground I had an explicit warning, that would be so funny. 
No. <laughs> They're not expecting kids, not a... kids to buy it. <laughs> Didn't have it. Hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting in, indeed. It's got more F-bombs per minute than Goodfellas. <laughs> no, that's impossible. But uh, that's, uh, Oh, my God. Um, you know what? I, th- I think, you know, between us, Ken, we've agreed that uh, Kicked Around No More and Long Leather, Leather Cut are two real highlights from these sessions, though. So mm. I'm glad we could come to some common ground on Off the Ground. But... Uh, yeah, thank you so much for dis- for discussing these songs with me, dude. There is no better way for me to spend my Saturday afternoon. That's all. This has been, you know, another resounding success as far as I'm concerned. I can't wait to edit this for my podcast. I can't wait to see it on your YouTube channel in the future. Um, just thank you so much for joining me, dude. Once again, hey, it's so it's always a joy. It's such a joy. It's just such working a joy with you. Yeah. <laughs> I like the uh, Ram look you got right now. Sam, yes. so uh, <laughs> holding the sheep like oh, that. Like, now, did, now, did, now did, this is more rooftop, I'd, I'd say. Um, you know, like that that bit when you've got uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg there and the, that zoom in on Paul. <laughs> okay, all right. Or like I you know, you know, he sat really depressed like, like like that, and then there were three, and it's like. <laughs> then there were two. And then there were two. <laughs> that's a very that's a very uh, emotional moment there. Oh, heartbreaking! Absolutely. Look in Paul's eyes. No, there's there's another shot that's doing the rounds as well, where his eyes are just red for another reason as well. They are bulging out of his head like like his Steve Buscemi or something. <laughs> Save that for another show, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I might, I'm, I might even do a whole show on that topic one day. I don't, I don't know. I seem, like, I feel like I could get a lot out of that. I feel like I could get a lot out of that. But anyway, let, Ken, let me, let me ask you one thing before okay. we go. Okay. You know, why did you name your show Paul or Nothing? Oh, because so there's it, a song All or Nothing. No, that, you know, so, um, I mean, me with podcast titles, they're very much like Paul with lyrics. It's, I'd like to go with one of the first things that come to my head. Um, okay. For my Tom Waits one, I thought of "Down in the Hole." That's one of his biggest songs. It just made sense. It sounds podcasty, mm. and um, Paul or nothing. It it just because it's it's the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I just I, I just felt like you know. Okay. It 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 fits my my mantra. If it's if it's if I want all Paul or nothing, you know. Uh, <laughs> and it, and if there is no Paul, then. You don't get a podcast. Um, yeah, it was definitely something that just came up more with on the spot. Um, I mean, Two Legs is a pretty good title, I must I must admit. Uh, mm. But uh, Is it Two Legs only because there's two co-hosts? Yes. What yeah, if there yeah. were three? What if there were three? It'd have it, to be three legs. It'd have to be three legs. Um, mm. maybe, well, whenever I go on, like tomorrow. It's three legs. Know, it's basically three <laughs> legs, yeah. <laughs> And then uh, the uh, "Take It Away" podcast—that's that's another song song title that just works as a. I mean, Ken, you know how song titles make great names for radio shows and podcasts. You know, it's uh, it just makes sense. You mean things we said today and talk more talk? Yeah, I could have done Paul together now, maybe. Uh, <laughs> no, Paul together now. Paul together now. Paul together. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think so. Paul. <laughs> 
all my trials, maybe? Uh, uh, no. All my loving. All my loving. That's actually not bad, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I could have done that while actually all my loving. Um, thank you, folks, for joining us on another episode of Paul My Loving. Uh, I'm Paul Together Now, uh, Paul My Trials. Uh, I've been Sam Wilde, your host. He's been Ken Michaels, either my guest or your host, depending on which format you are viewing this through. Like I say, this will be available on my podcast and on Ken's uh, YouTube channel. So if you want to listen to us, check out the podcast. If you want to see our beautiful faces and my stupid reactions, go check us out on Ken's YouTube page. Thank you so much for listening, for joining in, folks. I hope you've been moderately entertaining. I know I've had a lot of fun, at least, but I've been Sam. He's been Ken. Peace and love. Peace and love. Remember what we've It's been a pleasure. It's hotter than it was at rehearsals. <laughs> We're one of them, isn't it? Next song's got a story attached to it. Down in Houston, in Texas, there's a jail. Behave yourself. There's a jail. It's called Sugarland. And every night at midnight, the train runs past that jail. And the legend is, if the light shines on you, you're going to be released. The train's called the Midnight Special.
wake up early in the morning In the ding-dong rain Come walking to the table See the same damn thing Diving fuck upon the table Little piece of paper in my hand Nothing I can do about it I get in trouble with a man Let him in my special Shine his light on You'll be sugar laying by 